Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the deep principles we live by and how we can better understand people different from ourselves. Before we kick off, we have a couple of announcements. One is that we will have an Easter special coming up for you next week, so you don't have to wait for your usual fortnight for your next episode of The Sacred. I spoke to Archbishop Justin Welby at Lambeth Palace and we'll be releasing that next Wednesday, just in time for the long weekend. We've also got coming up a live sacred as part of the second Religion in the Media conference Exploring Belief on the 30th of April at the JW3 Community Centre in Finchley. Alongside a lineup that includes Rabbi Sachs and James Purnell, the BBC's director of radio, I'll be interviewing Tanya Manira Williams. Tanya is a Jamaican rapper and poet who converted to Islam, and I'm really looking forward to speaking to her. If you can't make the conference, we're also planning an evening live show later in the year with some exciting guests. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Matthew Taylor. Matthew is the chief executive of the RSA, author of the 2016 Taylor Report Review of Modern Employment, commissioned by Theresa May, and a panellist on the BBC Radio 4 programme The Moral Maze. He was formerly head of the Number 10 Policy Unit under Tony Blair, director of IPPR, assistant general secretary of the Labour Party, and a county councillor. We spoke about his childhood loneliness, his itch to change the world, why he's really uncomfortable with conflict, and why, as an atheist, he's very happy for his daughter to be raised in church. I really hope you enjoy listening. Matthew, I'm going to kick off with the big meaty question that we start every podcast with, which was in part inspired by you about sacred values, which I first came across in Scott Atran and talking to the enemy. So hopefully your grasp of what I mean by sacred values will be better than some. But to recap for the listener, it really doesn't have to be anything to do with religion at all. It's about values or principles that you hold very dear, that are very formative in your life. And when those are compromised or threatened, you feel quite a strong instinctive reaction against that. Having had a little bit of time to reflect, do you have any idea what your sacred values might be? Yeah, well, thanks. I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to give you an incredibly conventional, classic kind of liberal uh, argument. I think the only, the, the only thing I can say in my defence is liberalism is so out of fashion at the moment that maybe having a, a classic liberal position is more interesting than it would have been a while ago. I, I think human rights are an important starting point for this conversation for, for, for me. And I think that human rights, the development of human rights is one of the great progressive movements in the whole human story. So uh, I, I think we could do a lot worse than, than than situate the sacred in terms of the notion of the defence of people's human rights. Once I get beyond that and it becomes kind of more personal, then I, I think for me, trying to resolve issues in a constructive and civilised manner really matters to me. And I have a kind of visceral, and I think it's a problem actually, to be honest, but I have a visceral problem, a difficulty with people who seem to want to polarise issues and to crank up the level of kind of antagonism. And as I say, I think that is a problem because I think that that kind of position, that can be a kind of holier than thou position that liberals adopt. And it means that they don't listen to people who feel visceral, who feel angry. And on the one hand, it, it, there's no empathy then for people who feel that way. On the other hand, there's a kind of implicit superiority to that position. Because look at me, I can control my emotions and you can't control yours. So I think trying to resolve things positively and constructively feels like quite a sacred thing for me in the sense of my reaction is, is to, to otherwise is visceral. But I, I think it's an interesting thing. Oh, and then of course, you get into the stuff like family and my football team, which is kind of you know, much more personal, but also pretty predictable. I won't ask you who your football team is because we want all the listeners to keep listening no, that's and not fair. to know that's which tribal fair. box you are that's in for fair. that. That stuff goes deep. Do you have a hunch about why, particularly the second one about resolving things you, you talked about in a civilised manner? 
do you think it's personality type? Do you think it's something from your parenting or your education? Do you, would you have a guess at why you think you find it so difficult when the temperature goes up in a conversation? Yeah, so uh, I think partly I fear conflict, uh, like I guess a lot of people do. I, I'm, you know, I'm not great at it. Um, who was it who once said it was a great line? I said, I'm allergic to violence. It brings me out in bruises and scratches, you know. So I don't think I can handle that particularly well. I'm not somebody who shouts very often and I tend to kind of curl up in a ball in the face of, in the face of that. I think also it's to do with the style of communication that I've developed. And that goes back to I was at, when I was at university and I won't go into the whole story, but there was a, a big debate at university. And in this big debate, I was in a position opposed to the position of all my colleagues in the Labour group. This was at Southampton University, including the very charismatic leader of the Labour group, a guy called John Sapello. Of course, people will know now as a BBC journalist. And anyway, it culminated in a debate with 800 people. Now, young people will find the idea of 800 people going to a students' union debate completely ludicrous, but there were 800 people there. And we were discussing an incredibly kind of esoteric issue, which was whether or not to open a new bar in the concourse of the students' union. But it had become highly charged. I was really on the defensive in this debate and some pretty harsh things were said to me. And the first speaker against me was, you know, fiery and rhetorical. And, you know, I was frightened, to be honest. And I I didn't know what to do really. But I, what I did, there's a little desk at the front of the, in, in the well of the debating chamber. And I just sat on the side of the desk and I spoke like this, like I'm speaking now calmly and in a slightly self-effacing way and and just tried to explain why it is I'd adopted the position I'd adopted and not trying to, you know, browbeat people or to score points, but just to explain as calmly as I could. And at the end, we won the debate by about kind of 790 to 10 or something. It was a, and I think at that moment, I thought, well, that's the way I'm going to communicate. I'm going to communicate in that tone of voice. I'm going to try to engage people. I'm not at my best throwing my arms around. And so I guess I judge other people. This is an entirely kind of um, solipsist position. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, if I'm good at something, then I, that's what I value in other people. That is absolutely fascinating and very helpful and has really challenged me because I, re- as you were speaking, I realised that I, ha- I have all kinds of tribal assumptions because when people say they don't like conflict and they find it difficult, it makes them want to curl up in a ball. You're not the kind of person that I associate with that kind of thing. I'm someone who's been through the political system, been very involved actively in political parties and in think tanks and bluntly, and this is my impression, you're male. And in my head, I, I think, I assume that men are socialised into finding conflict easier. I wouldn't have known about you, you know, as a moral maze panellist, as someone who doesn't love conflict. I'm the voice of reason on moral maze. Okay. It's, it's a well-known fact. Yes, a fact. But, um, I can actually, and actually, I can confirm this fact for you because I went to a dinner party a few months ago and I sat next to somebody and we got chatting. I'd never met them before. And he said, oh, I'm a big Radio 4 fan. And of course, I preened myself slightly. So of course, actually, I appear on Radio 4 from time to time. And he said, oh, yes. I said, a moral maze. And he said, oh, it's one of my favourite programmes. I said, oh, well, I'm Matthew Taylor. And there was a long pause. And he said, oh, yes. He said, you're the reasonable one. And I thought, this hasn't really paid off as a strategy of self-promotion, has it? Because he certainly wouldn't have any difficulty remembering Melanie's name, Melanie Phillips' name, or Claire Fox's name, or Giles Fraser's name. So my adoption of the reasonable, tempered position on Moral Maze is not, is not, is not, is not, is not good for my celebrity status. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure. That, that should be the most important factor. So tell me, given that you aren't a massive fan of conflict, what led you into these inherently conflictual combative environments, industries, programs? 
you know, I, I, all my answers seem to have two elements to them, don't they? They seem to have a kind of on the uh, one hand this and on the other hand that. Yeah, yeah, but well, but also, but, part, but more specifically, that there's a kind of rationale for the world, and there's a kind of private rationale. So the rationale for the world is that I, I want to change the world. That that I've just always been interested in making things different, and you know, I I kind of pick at social problems like a child picks at a scab on their knee. I just kind of want to do something about it. And, you know, I don't think that's an entirely commendable thing. I think maybe people will listen and say, well, that's a kind of do-gooding attitude, an interfering attitude. Who are you to think you can make things better? But anyway, that's kind of who I am. I I, I suspect more personally that that derives from a kind of lack of, I don't know, lack of kind of, my inner life, I don't suspect, I don't think it's kind of terribly rich. I think I have to prove, I have to prove that I exist by making a difference to the world because I'm not sure if I made it, didn't make a difference to the world that I would be certain that I did exist. So I think there's a kind of deeper personal need at the, at the heart of it as well. Let's wind back a bit then because one of the things we try and do is hear a bit about people's stories so that we can locate each other in our public conversations as something other than just, you know, a tribal representative of a certain position or a certain industry or a certain group. So. Tell me a little about, bit about your childhood and uh, with particular reference, if you're able to, with any kind of big formative ideas, whether they were philosophical or religious or political that you think help make you the man that you are today. Yeah, I had a pretty grim childhood. It has to be said. I mean, look, when I say grim, I don't mean anything like as grim as you know, the bottom billion in the world or people who suffered abuse or anything like that. But, you know, I'm the only child of my four, this is a very rare, you'll never meet, very rarely meet anybody this is true of, I'm the only grandchild of my four grandparents. So I have no brothers, I have no sisters, I have no cousins. Uh, my parents split up when I was five. I went to seven different primary schools. I had an incredibly lonely childhood. I spent an enormous amount of time on my own or with my grandmother and, you know, it just wasn't great, to be honest. And so, you know, that has, I'm pretty sure that has an effect. That's why someone once I thought pithily described me as being fundamentally shallow and needy. And I think my shallowness and my neediness derives from just the kind of loneliness of, of, of that kind of upbringing. I don't blame my parents for that at all. My mother was 19 when I was born and my father was 25. You know, it was the early 60s. I think they probably might have made a different decision about their lives had it been a few years later. But, you know, they had me because that's what you did when you got pregnant in 1959, 1960. Um, So that, I think, had an effect on me. The plus side is that my parents are incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate, socially engaged people. And so, you know, I, I did get from them ideas. I listened to conversations. And kind of in the middle of those two things, on the kind of pathological loneliness and the kind of picking up on these brilliant, clever, engaged people, was that um, both my parents, particularly my father, uh, kind of drummed it into me from a very early age that that being a child was rather boring and that the more I could be like an adult, the better. So, you know, I think I tried from a very, very early age to be more sophisticated than I really was, yep. which... When I look back on it, it's, it's kind of embarrassing and I kind of want to hug that little boy who was trying to pretend that he could he could hold court with kind of sociology professors, but that, that was how it was. Because both your, your parents were academics? No, my father was an academic. My mother has done all sorts of weird and wonderful jobs throughout uh, her life. They met at drama college, actually. One of my fa- reasons my father's such a brilliant articulator of ideas is because he went to drama college before he then went and uh, got his kind of higher education. My mother's done all sorts of stuff. She's an amazing woman, my mother. This is a very personal question, given that we know each other a little bit, but not very much, but it's a sort of pastoral question. Am I sound- being more personal than your guests usually are, by the way? No, you're not. You're being more personal than people who spend a lot of their time in wonk land usually are. All right, okay. And it's... 
I'm too old to have a political ambition, so therefore I have no, nothing to hide. No, and it's, <laughs> it's actually immensely refreshing. Um, but it, it prompts me to ask whether you've had, you know, you've had professional help with reflecting on your childhood and the effect that it's had on you. Yeah, I have a few times. Which is a very personal question, so forgive me. No, no, I have. And I think the reason it doesn't work, hasn't really worked terribly well for me is why am I all my answers in twos? There's, I don't know. Where, but I think part of the reason it hasn't worked is because I just haven't stuck at it. One of the things that one of my therapists once said to me, which was really powerful, is he said, you don't really believe in time. You know, you don't believe that just doing something over a period of time will change things. You, you, you have no kind of... So I think, you know, a lot of stuff in my life, I've kind of thought, well, I'll learn the guitar. Why aren't I good after three weeks? You know, <laughs> and I think partly the other thing was I was just too cerebral. So I was too kind of interested in what was going on. And so, you know, I did therapists I went to for a few months in Leamington Spa when I was in my early 20s. I just wanted to have intellectual conversations with them about the kind of Freudian tradition and all this kind of stuff. And that's really not the right mindset. So I was also a little bit freaked out by the, by the long silences. Yes. That you have if you go to a psychoanalytic, some of the psychoanalytic tradition. They will let you just sit there for 40 minutes and you think, well, that's 100 quid. <laughs> yes. Mind you, maybe in this, maybe in today's world, sitting silently for forty minutes is a very powerful form. Mm, worth paying hundred pounds yeah, for. Yeah. How has that experience, the kind of the formation of your childhood, changed how you think about your own fathering? I like to think that I probably have been a better father than my father was to me. Not because I, not for reasons I blame him, but just because the world had moved on. Expectations of fathers have changed. I had, I was a bit older. I understood things a bit better, but. You know, we make mistakes, we get things wrong, and even when we try to get things right, they don't always work out. Given that truth about human fragility and frailty, which we all share, what does that mean for the way we talk to each other in public and in the public square or the public conversation, which is a kind of complicated and poorly defined phrase, obviously? But one of the reasons I ask people to be as personal as they're comfortable being early on in the podcast is almost to hammer that home before we move into ideas and get into analyst mode and to remind listeners and to remind ourselves of the complexity of the human beings that are taking part in these conversations. But often, particularly in politics and policy, uh, the personal is very much downgraded, kept outside the door. And, you know, the person with the, with the, in theory, the best ideas and the best evidence and the best data wins. How have you found that? And what is the right balance? Because the obvious risk is obviously going into too hyper-emotional, too hyper-personal mode instead. Yeah, I, I, I think you've expressed the dilemma very well. I guess my sense would be, I'd kind of say, bring. I mean, it's a terrible cliche, isn't it? Bring your whole self to work or whatever. But I would say, you know, I think in bringing your whole self to those things, it, if you do it right and you recognise, as I said, that that doesn't mean that you accept second-rate evidence or that you do things purely on the basis of instinct. But if you bring yourself to it, I think you're more likely... You'll, you'll, you're more likely to have an empathy which can avoid bad policy making. How easy do you find to do that personally as a leader at the RSA and as a kind of person with a public voice? I try to be as personal as I can. I, 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 I try to I hope my personality is part of what it is that makes what I say interesting, what I write interesting. You know, I, I, when I read stuff that's written by other people, a bit, as long as it's not grating, then I, I, I enjoy a sense that I know who's writing this and where they're writing it from. So, you know, I think that's, that, that is a part of it. You know, I, I have a kind of line in self-deprecation, which is useful because I kind of, you know, I'm, you know, I kind of, I'm tall and I look a little bit like Frankenstein's monster. So, you know, having a kind of capacity to, to deflate the, the slightly intimidating appearance I can sometimes have and the fact that I speak very quickly and I throw ideas around, I think that kind of, 
that helps. I don't think you look anything like Frankenstein's monster, but um, fair enough. So let's get on to what you've learned personally through your engagement across difference. And perhaps let's start with your time at really working at the heart of a political party. What worked when you were trying to build, not necessarily consensus, but certainly work with other people who you disagreed with? And did you pick up any kind of principles or tricks or uh, practices that you've gone on to use in later life? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the, the best persuader in the world. I don't think I'm the best strategist in the world. So I'm not speaking from a, 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 a position where I have any particular authority. But I guess what I've learned is it's incredibly important to try to understand where other people are coming, where other people are coming from. I think we waste an unbelievable amount of time in making assumptions about why people think what they think uh, without really listening and listening hard. Um, you know, I would have thought that 90% of money that's spent on public affairs is just money poured down the drain because it's people lobbying people without really understanding what that person's actual position is. And, you know, when I worked in number 10, very often people would come and see me, try and persuade me of something, not knowing that I was entirely persuaded of it, that my problem was persuading the Treasury or persuading Tony or or whatever. So, you know, rule number one always is is try to understand where somebody else is coming from, the kind of pressures that there under, much more likely you can have a useful conversation in doing that. Do you mind just giving like a one-line description of what the RSA is for our listeners who don't know? The RSA is a thought leadership organisation that combines research and innovation with 30,000 fellows who share our values and are part of our process of change and a platform for ideas, which takes some of the most interesting ideas in the world and, and communicates them to uh, you know, literally millions of people. Our kind of strapline is enriching society through ideas and actions. So we're a broadly progressive thing where we sometimes say we're best of the think tank world, best of the social movement world. I hadn't realised, is 21st century enlightenment still one of your straplines or has it, it moved on 21st to 21st is our kind of, yeah, that's our kind of, that's our a catchphrase, if you like. But then our fuller mission is yeah. enriching society through ideas and action. Although we're currently in the process, as organisations are always in the process of considering whether or not there's a better way of talking about ourselves. Yeah. We've, rebranded in the last 18 months or so and started also talking how was about that? How was that for you? Oh, you know, <laughs> uh, wonderful and challenging and long and complicated. And the ideas are hard to articulate, aren't they, in ways that land with yeah, everyone? What, what was interesting is that we have, we've had two attempts at this at the time I've been there. And I think one of them was very successful, one of them less successful. But so we called us, we use the phrase 21st century enlightenment. And I think in the end, although I think that's a great phrase because we're in enlightenment, you know, born in the enlightenment, although, you know, I'm not a, an Enlightenment zealot. But the problem with 21st century Enlightenment, it's too much about us. And then we had another uh, a phrase which we used for a, long, for a few years, which is power to create. And that some people like that, but that was too much about the world and not enough about us. So I think the trick is to have a way of, is to have a strapline that encapsulate both who you are and what you're trying to give to the world. Yeah, it is really difficult. The way I elevate What's it, yours? Well, we are enriching... Oh, it's, it's, you don't know your own strap line. No, well, it's because it's in two different <laughs> versions, but it, it is enriching society, understanding faith, or oh. um, enriching the conversation about faith in society. That's good. But in practice, the way I describe theos is an antihistamine for those with an allergy to religion, because we feel like it's a you know a bunch of flowers. There's a few thorns, fair enough, but that you know these are tr- there's treasure here, there's riches here. And are we going to get onto the God thing at all? I yes. mean, I've come all this way. I mean, oh yeah, no, we, we've done that. We've done the personal <laughs> stuff. So I wanted to ask about that set of ideas that we obviously have a perspective on. And I hate the word journey. Your interaction with religion, you're obviously famous for being part of a, a gang who Alistair Campbell began to, began, um, became 
I think possibly quite unfairly seen as representing the, you know, the Don't Do God Brigade and then worked very closely with Tony, who went on to talk a lot about religion after his time in office. There was no faith by the sound of it in your childhood. No, absolutely. The reverse, to be honest. I mean, my, my grandmother, my grandmothers were religious. My, grand, my grandmother on my mother's side was kind of high Anglican, high Tory. And my father's mother was uh, Catholic. But my father's father was a kind of, well, he, he comes from a Methodist background, but he was an atheist. There's, a, I, there's a wonderful story, which is that he was, um, he was a moderate Labour man. And he was horrified at what happened in the 80s, the Labour Party. And he loved Tony. And it happened to be that my grandfather had a stroke and uh, it was, you know, near the end of his life. And my father said to me, look, you know, he just reveres Tony Blair and you're working for him. Is there anything, you know, could you, I don't know, could you kind of get anything from... So I, so Tony, it was really nice of him, wrote a little note to my grandfather saying, you know, I hear you're not very well, just want to tell you, you know, your grandson's doing great work and, you know, Hope you get well soon, kind of thing. And my grandfather was, oh, he was delighted. And he, 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 uh, my, my father got it framed for him. So he was in his bed in Crosby in Liverpool. He's been bed bound, really. And I went to see him, and there it was, this letter in, in this kind of um, little frame on his bedside table. And I was chatting with him. And then there's this moment, and he leant forward to me, and he was quite frail, and he put his hand on my arm, and he just said, he said, just one thing, he said, he doesn't really believe all that religious muck, does he? <laughs> so that, that phrase, religious muck, is <laughs> that's not a bad indication, I think, of certainly my father's kind of view. My father, uh, I don't know if he still is, but yeah, I think he was chair of the Rationalist Association or Humanist Association. So, you know, for him, not believing in God is kind of a big thing. You know, it's, it's not just the absence of faith. It's a strong belief. So that's kind of the background that I've got. But I have been on... And as you say, it's an awful phrase. I have been on a journey. Uh, it's not a journey to faith, sadly, because I wish I did have faith, actually. But it isn't a journey to faith. But it is a journey to understanding the importance of religion, admiring people who have faith, believing in the, in the end that societies with strong religions, that not, but not fundamentalist religions, are probably stronger, and that people who adhere to faith are, generally speaking, happier and more kind of socially benign and responsible than non-believers. So, you know, that's a kind of peculiar position to be in. You know, it's like, basically, I, I'm not in the mine mining the thing that I, the ore, but I think the ore is a good thing for society. It's a, not a particularly coherent position, I guess. But, and, it, and, I, and also, I think it can probably sound terribly patronising if you're a believer, which is, you know, of course, I don't believe because I'm far too rational and clever, but it's jolly good that you do, you know, and I, I, I don't mean that at all. But I find religion really, really interesting, you know. And, you know, I'm a sociologist by background. And, and actually, if you, you know, the history of sociology, the early history of sociology in particular, particularly Weber and Durkheim, they were fascinated by religion. So I think if you're a sociologist, you have to be fascinated by religion. And what happened to get you to that position? Was it personal? Was it intellectual? Was it part of your work at the RSA? So uh, it, 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 it's partly data, actually. It, you know, the, the just is pretty strong data about the fact that people who, who are who have faith and who are religiously observant uh, have have higher well-being and are more likely to give back to society. So, you know, I just think the facts can speak for them themselves. But also, I've just seen the positive role that faith can play in, in people's lives. So look, more, more, I have to say, in relation to the notion of tradition and heritage and belonging and family than in terms of spirituality. But, I, you know, but I can see that. And my wife is a Catholic. She goes to Mass every week. She takes my daughter. I go occasionally, 
partly because I'm fascinated because there is no, I, there is nowhere I can go to where I can meet a more diverse group of people. I'm obviously they're all bloody Catholics, but you know they they range from two days old to ninety years old, from twin set and pearls to the homeless person, uh, and from you know uh, just about every part of the world where Catholicism is practiced. So you know that's an amazing thing when you go there. Although I always when I go there, and the room is full of these people, and it's an amazing audience. I then think, oh, why can't they get the sound system right? Why can't the priest be a little bit more kind of engaging? I mean, you've got this audience, you're wasting, you're throwing it away. And my, my wife says to me, that's not the point. You know, it's the, in, in, in fact, she says to me, part of the point is that it's a bit amateurish and that the sound system doesn't work and that the priest isn't terribly coherent. That's part of it. It was all incredibly, if, you know, we're not evangelicals, she says. We're not evangelicals. It's not about having a show. Well, I'm not, sorry, she's not attacking evangelicals, but you know that's that that's part of it. And um, I, so yeah, I, I I've kind of the, the mother of my my sons was a Catholic, and there was that whole kind of Catholic Irish thing that was part of that family that I used to you know stand on the outside of and think was was great. And I've got a lot of Jewish friends. My uh, father's an to a Jewish woman, and that I you know I I've, I I love the kind of you know Jewish tradition, Jewish humor, Jewish culture. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I had a faith and I wish I had all that stuff that not just I wish I had faith, but I wish I had all that kind of culture that comes with it. And I'm delighted that my daughter is growing up in it. You know, and I tell you what, I really do think, and it's quite hard, this, isn't it? Because it's, you can tell me that you must have spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Is it manipulative for me to feel that it is good for my daughter to believe in God? You know, so if I don't believe in God, but, so that's my position. I don't believe in God, but I think it's good for my daughter to believe in God. I think if you're six years old, to believe that there is, you know, to believe in God in quite a naive way, that there is some meaning to it all, that there is someone overseeing it, there's somebody who who's looking after you, looking out for you. I just think that must be a good thing to have as a child. It's a really, really good question. And something that my husband and I wrestle with a lot because both of us came to faith later. and not quite as adults, but closer to adults than childhood and therefore have a very clear sense of the, auto- the autonomy of the decision. And one of the things we worry about with our children is the kind of level on which you need to te- teach about religion for a child to understand it at Sunday school. Can I think either inoculate you against it to the kind of strangeness and power and beauty and weirdness of religion because it becomes part of your background furniture, but can also, I think, oversimplify to this point of just being not true. And we're, you know, similar tribe in the sense of sort of overthinkers, interested in ideas, happy with complexity, happy with nuance, but you can't really get that with a four-year-old. So I, I have almost the opposite instinct as a Christian is almost to keep her away from it until she can have an account, encounter with enough of a developed well, mind. So- and I don't know if which of those would be manipulative? So I'm very fortunate with my daughter because she, I went to her class of liturgy a couple of weeks ago. It was really moving. And so she can do all the kind of stuff, all the words, all the, all the stuff that someone who wasn't religious might term kind of mumbo jumbo, if you like. I'm not using that phrase, but you know what I mean, all that kind of stuff. I don't mind. But she said the other day to her mother, yeah, of course, mum, we can't really know, can we? So I, I thought, well, if she's got that level of doubt, then I don't need to worry about her becoming a kind yeah. of yeah. banging fundamentalist of any kind. If no. she's, she's doubting at six, then I suspect she'll be able to make her own decisions when she's a teenager. Yeah. The way I think about it is that if, if children are introduced to the possibility of there being a good and loving God in the universe as a child, then they can decide that's not true later. If you're not given that as one of your, op- and you, it's really important that they do get the autonomy to decide that for themselves. 
if they're not given that as at least one of the possibilities early on, then, and I find this in the conversation with, with lots of other atheists on the podcast, that it almost shuts down as, as, our, as our imaginative faculties develop, as our emotions develop, as our way of being in the world develops. If you only encounter that as a possibility later, it can and it does to many people just seem so utterly absurd that it's really hard to have conversations across that difference and to be yeah, open yeah. to the possibility of it. Yeah. And so it feels like in so terms that, of... That's almost like religion, like a musical instrument. You know, learn it when you're young because you can always give it up. But if you don't learn it when you're young, it's really hard to learn it when you're old. Well, Ian McGilchrist, who's, who I came across at the RSA, oh, yes. speaks a lot about brain hemispheres. and does. Writes a, writes a lot about it. Writes a lot about brain. And he's fascinating on this because he talks about, you know, basically a part of the brain in which religion and music and art and the things that don't necessarily have hard edges or, you know, spreadsheetable data around that we choose to invest in those parts of ourselves, those parts of our brains, or we don't. And societies form You've us- forgotten whether it's the right or the left, haven't you? Yes, definitely. I always do. <laughs> I think it's the right, the spontaneous bit. And I think the way I remember it is the kind of right now. It's the kind of right now bit. Okay. So I think it's the right, okay. which is the spontaneous, spiritual, emotional, visceral, creative, artistic. And yeah. it's the left, which yes. is the PowerPoint presentation. Exactly. Which I think um, is probably a bit unfair. Which we need as well. A bit unfair on the left. But. We need as well, definitely. And, I, you know, there's members of my team who are definitely yes. more that way and we really need them. But so I think of it as giving people the faculty for spirituality, the, the, the sensibility or the awareness or the possibility as part of their formation is not manipulative. As long as, as she grows and as her awareness grows and her reasoning grows at every point, you're able to answer her questions honestly and, and all of those kind of things. Yeah. That's what I hope. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful rationale. But even if I didn't have that rationale, I would just think she seems to enjoy it. And, you know, she's six years old and she goes to mass on a Sunday morning, more or less without complaint. And, you know, actually, like all parents, like all modern middle-class parents, you know, I'm terrified of forcing my children to do anything they don't want to do. So, you know, the fact that she does that, she does that without complaint, and it it can't be terribly interesting. But you know, I, you know, a bit of ritual, a bit of routine in life. So, my final question, really, and forgive me because this is slightly a bit of free consultancy, but is relevant to what we've talked about, which is given that you are in some ways an ally, you're someone who sees the value in religious ideas and religious communities, even though you don't share them, and have been in tribes that would be much more hostile. What could religious people in general do better to help bridge those divides, to help offer those riches in ways that aren't likely to set off that allergy or are less likely to be perceived as, because sometimes they obviously are power grabbing and, you know, tribal and shrill and difficult. Religious people are deeply guilty of that at times, but where there's a genuine intent to offer and to serve the flourishing of wider society and it's just not landing, what might be able to change other than a better PA system? Well, I think two things, really. I think uh, maybe three. But but the first one is whatever you do, don't talk about whether or not God exists. That's just the most completely pointless and ludicrous and stupid conversation. If someone pointed out to me, if we could prove that God existed, religion would die on the spot because it would no longer be a matter of faith. It would be politics. We'd all be involved in lobbying God, you know. So f- number one, just say the conversation about whether God exists is just not a conversation that anybody should usefully have, right? That's the first thing. I think secondly, understand, and this is where we came in, isn't it? Uh, is understand that we all have sacred feelings. And actually what is interesting at the moment, there's, as you probably know, there are a spate of books about the crisis of liberal democracy. It's become the hot topic. It's kind of like this year's equivalent to cooking or 
gardening. You know, there's it's a, the book every day on the crisis of liberal democracy. What a lot of those books say is that that in the end, certain forms of solidarity and sacredness, class affiliation, religious affiliation, as long as it's not kind of fundamentalist, seem to be better than other forms of, of identity, which are kind of making our politics quite difficult at the moment, whether it's the kind of tribalism, the kind of tribalism of the left and the right, which is making politics really difficult. So there's a kind of sense of, can't we get back to the good old days when your tribe was your class and you had a politics that was based on class? And yes, there was conflict, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't the conflict around, you know, that, that feels so visceral, feels so impossible to deal with that we have in our politics right now. So I I think the second thing I'd say is, is, as you implied at the beginning, we all have sacred beliefs. We all desire a sense of belonging. We all want to feel we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And so religion in that sense is no different and is probably a lot more benign than certain other things that meet those needs. And then thirdly, I think what, what I don't really need to say this, actually, because I think that certainly religions in Britain understand this and they do it, is, to, is just to kind of get out there and, and, and be, a, be a trusted agency making a difference to the world. Because in the end, you know, the world is awash with opinion and what makes a difference is people who actually go out there and, and do this stuff and make a difference to people's lives. And if, if religion ever looks like it's more interested in ideas and more interested in adopting positions than it is in helping people and particularly the most disadvantaged and vulnerable people, then I think it loses credibility. Two things. One is that Nick Spencer did a report called Doing Good, which made that, doing good, which made that exact case about the kind of active on the ground uh, legitimacy that uh, faith groups do have and should continue to be having. The second one is just, I guess, to express some frustration about the don't talk about whether God exists thing. Because at the RSA involved in the spirituality report, I talked about dropping the G-bomb because talking about God already seems so taboo. And yet without it, all of the good stuff that religion brings can feel to religious believers deeply instrumentalized because the, the fundamental motivating factor for most people and for me is this fact of the universe, which changes everything. And so I guess my question would be, if we're not just, if we're not kind of getting into ding dongs about cosmology and can we prove it or disprove it? But if we're just honestly and authentically trying to say, I believe there's a God and that's really important to me, is that okay? Because otherwise it of feels it's like... Okay. No, all, all I'm saying is what's not okay is me or you having a conversation which I tried to convince you that you're wrong or you tried to convince mm. me that you're right. I mean, it's just, that is what is completely pointless. And, and as I say, the, 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 the fundamental futility of trying to prove something that is unprovable... Mm. And, you know, as my wife's father is a world-renowned theologian, says, you know, if, if, if God was what the atheists say God is, he would be an atheist himself. So it, it's just an enormous waste of time. You know, I completely get that you believe in God and I think it must be an amazing thing for you. That's fine. Absolutely fine. I think my fear is, I don't know what the, what the middle ground is between... Do you want to convert me? N- well, I mean, yes, ideally, because I think it's brilliant, but not right now. Um, I... But do you think it's legitimate? Do you think it's useful to want to convert me? What would, you, what would you be trying to convert me to? To convert me to the fact that you feel happy about believing, which I can see. I can see that. Mm. And I, I go, you know, you're lucky. I wish I had it. Or convert me to the fact that my thinking is wrong and I failed to notice something about the cosmos or about nature or whatever that would somehow convince me that I was wrong. Neither of those things. Or that I need it, maybe. This is really hard to describe, but it's like... It's like when you fall in love and you can't stop talking about it. 
And because I had a very powerful experience in my teens of going from feeling like there was no God in the world to, to praying, God, if you're real, reveal yourself, to having a very powerful charismatic experience, which I feel has been psychologically incredibly healthy and protective and has led me into places where I find sources of goodness and truth and beauty. So it's not that I want to move you from one box on the census to another or that I feel like I have the right intellectual arguments and others haven't. It's that I have an experience and I don't know how to talk about it with people. I yeah. really. Well, so, so uh, I would no, like people no, to so know what the, the possibility well, no, but of What it. that gives me, Liz, is, is it gives me two things, right? The uh, first one is a cheap shot. So uh, Go may, for it. I'm not offendable. <laughs> but you said that it's well, like the feeling you have when you fall in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lacan uh, famously said that uh, falling in love uh, is the hysterical delusion that we're no longer alone in the world. And I think that, and I, I don't, that is a cheap shot, but I, I actually don't mean it in disparaging terms, really, because that's what you're describing. You're describing the fact that you not, do not feel alone in the world. And unfortunately, romantic love, um, you know, even lifelong romantic love, you know, there are lots of times when you are aware of the fact that, that you know, there is a distance between you and your partner. You are alone in the world. So to, ne- to never believe that you're alone in the world, my goodness, that must be an amazing feeling. And, you know, what a wonderful description of what you've got. And, I don't know, really. Maybe I shouldn't just be so up myself. You know, you're, you know, uh, there you are. You're saying, look, there's this possibility of not feeling alone in the world. All you need to do is swallow a little bit of your kind of, you know, rational hang-ups and just go for it. And here I'm not doing it. I'm like a kind of, you know, I'm like a, an alcoholic. I won't put the drink down or whatever. You know, I, there's a possibility. I could just do it. I could just commit myself to it. Yeah. So do you, because I've just said that actually, yes, I do really care about sharing it and and I fear doing it because I'm so aware of what's inappropriate and of hurting people's feelings or offending people or being annoying. I don't do it very much. Do you feel like the conversation that we just had crossed a line or no. could we, if we were brave enough, all be having more of those? No, not, no not at all. I, th- I think you'd be a really powerful missionary. I think if you, if you went around just saying to people, you know, that kind of emptiness thing, there's actually a way of getting rid of that. It's a way of not <laughs> feeling that again. I mean, look, if we had more time, I would say to you, but what do you, what happens when it, you don't believe? Because I, you know, actually you're not, you know, I, 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 if I was really being patronising, I'd be saying, oh, this is somebody who doesn't have doubt. Of course you have Oh, doubt. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, this is a longer conversation, but I think, the way, you, I think the way you've articulated it is incredibly powerful, but doesn't in any way feel it infringes my right to resist that power. Great. Well, that's helpful because it means that there are, that there, that them, other than the never talking about it because we're never going to persuade each other, which I think what that leads to is people who aren't religious assuming that religious people don't actually believe it. And I get that a lot. A lot of people assume that I'm a Christian, but in the like safe, the safe liberal way. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah <laughs> not yeah. in the actually something. Like a sociological Christian. But yeah. Not I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, not a spiritual you know, Christian. I'm a nice soft Anglican who likes you know, baroque music and gothic architecture yeah, yeah, yeah. because the G-bomb is so hard to talk about. Um, but you've done, you've talked about it brilliantly. Anyway, yeah. look, we've run out of time, but I'm going to, I, I can't go without, so I gave you that Lacan quote where yeah. he said, uh, love is the historical delusion. We're no longer in the, uh, alone in the world. I interviewed Adam, Adam Phillips once, the psychoanalyst and writer for an RSA event. And I shared that quote with him because I said, oh, it's just such a brilliant quote. And he said, oh, it's not Lacan's most bleak quote. His most bleak quote is he was once asked, what, what is the feeling of falling in love. 
And he said, it's giving something you don't have to somebody who doesn't exist. <laughs> My word. <laughs> and, on, and on that bombshell. <laughs> to go, have to go. Uh, talk to Lacan's disciples today. Matthew, I really appreciate um, that really rich and stimulating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.